The Gist is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. And by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, starting February 8th, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, February 6th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Yesterday, Ari Fleischer, former Bush spokesman. And not just that. Other clients have included the Bowl Championship Series of college football, now defunct. Tiger Woods, now detoothed, and the Washington NFL team whose name Slate would rather I not say. So anyway, an impressive client list. Yesterday, Mr. Fleischer tweeted, if Rush Limbaugh lied about being on a helicopter that was shot down, it would be page one of the New York Times. But it's Brian Williams, so it's page B10. But the New York Times did put that story on page B1, so Ari Fleischer was wrong. Or was he right? Was he so right that there was no way for the New York Times not to put the story on page one, else risk condemnation when they lead with the inevitable tale of the time Rush Limbaugh claimed to have completed an unassisted solo ascent of El Presidente's Don Wall. But to me, this whole thing seemed like fertile territory. It's the hypothetical news placement game. Like, if Ari Fleischer can say where the New York Times did or didn't put the Brian Williams story, where it would have played the Rush Limbaugh story, we could do it too. Like, um, sure, the New York Times covers the story of leftists winning Greek parliamentary elections, but if it had been Latvian conservatives in a power-sharing scheme, they would have run it on B12. That's actually happened. Or, sure, the New York Times notes that Loretta Lynch is in line to become the first black female attorney general. But when it was white Southerner Loretta Lynn, where did they mention that she was the first woman in country music to receive a certified gold album for Don't Come Home a-Drinkin' with Lovin' on Your Mind? Huh? Huh, New York Times? Sure. The media, all the media, can't get enough of Seth Rogen tweeting criticisms of American Sniper. But when it's Jonah Hill not criticizing or even saying anything about Dinesh D'Souza, where are all the retweets? Sure, the Today Show did an animal segment with noted environmentalist Joan Embry. But would Lauren Lake's paternity court dare interview conservative icon Phyllis Schlafly? I rest my case. On the show today, we get Dear Prudy's advice from a woman who would like to free herself from the advice she keeps getting in letters from her dead mother. And in the spiel, names in the news, or 15th century France. But first, Emily Bazelon and I come up with just about zero solutions. But we do talk about fetal homicide laws. Days ago, Pervy Patel, a 33-year-old Indiana woman, was convicted of a crime. Two crimes, in fact. Two contradictory crimes. Six months pregnant, Patel miscarried and then threw the unborn child in a dumpster. The state introduced evidence that Patel had induced the miscarriage, and then it charged her with failure to dispose of the body. But it also charged her with delivering a live fetus and killing it. Legal experts are wondering how this happened. Some reproductive rights experts, to quote Bustle, describe it this way, laws 
end up criminalizing pregnant women in tragic circumstances. Joining me now is Emily Bazelon, panelist on Slate's Political Gab Fest, now a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, Mike. This is a complicated case, I think, and it does show a few things, but what do you think it demonstrates? Well, I suppose it's legally complicated. I think, morally speaking, it's fairly simple. And that is to say that it's terrible to be in the situation this woman was in of having an unwanted pregnancy and desperately trying to figure out how to end it and not being able to do that. And, you know, we don't know or I don't know enough about her mental health or her circumstances to know why she was in that position. And then the question becomes, what is the purpose of criminalizing it? And, you know, then I think the difficult issue this case does raise is that if this baby was born alive, then we have certainly crossed the line into killing a human being. And then you have to weigh whether you think that the way this woman got into this position matters in making that evaluation. What can you tell me about, is it a trend of state feticide laws, or is this just something we notice because this case is so prominent? There is somewhat of a trend among states of um, using feticide laws to become stricter and stricter and punish women. There have been cases in which babies have been born to mothers who are addicted to drugs, and those mothers have been prosecuted, even though, honestly, the science showing that the drugs cause things to go wrong for babies is a little shaky. And there have been cases of women who have miscarried or who even have come in and reported a miscarriage that then maybe they said, well, I expressed ambivalence about having this baby, but I didn't cause the miscarriage. There have been prosecutions like that. Like you, I think those are different cases than this case, but that's the range that we're talking about. You know, there was another case in Indiana where there was a backlash against it, a Chinese immigrant attempted, who was pregnant, eight months pregnant, attempted suicide because eight months is uh, considered viable. She was prosecuted under the fetal homicide law, but she uh, uh, served less than a year in jail, I think, because of the backlash. But, you know, the viability of the fetus inside a pregnant woman How complicating is it or should it be? I mean, should the laws reflect murder or not murder based on the month of pregnancy? You know, I have an internally inconsistent position about this one. I find the idea that a woman taking her own life or attempting to take her own life of being prosecuted for the murder of her fetus to be abhorrent. It just seems like the wrong thing entirely. However, if you change the facts around and you have a situation where a woman is eight months pregnant and, you know, for example, someone tries to kill her and beats her and she loses a wanted pregnancy, that seems like a different matter to me. And I suppose I would try to reconcile them by saying that in the second circumstance, I would not want to have a fetal homicide uh, prosecution, but I would want to have a criminal prosecution that in some ways recognized the woman's interest in her fetus as well as the fact that she is carrying a living being that is viable. Yeah, I guess the question there is, is attempting suicide while eight months pregnant, is that the equivalent of driving your baby, your month-old baby into the lake? I mean, I guess the authors of that law and many would look at it. Does the law make a distinction between a clearly or what at a certain month would be a clearly viable baby if born and an actual, you know, one month old? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think there is a distinction. To me, until a woman has a baby, she, her life is implicated in carrying that child and her rights matter. I don't know where we sort of cross 
from a fetus almost being a baby because it's viable outside the womb. Um, I, I'm just not quite sure what to do about all of those really thorny questions, which luckily don't arise that often. What do you think? Um, wow. This is not a legal question. That's a great like question. A, uh, you know, I sometimes take the easy out and just attack the people who make the worst arguments. Like, I do think it's a gray area. And I think the example of infanticide complicates all the pat or so many of the pat things we say about abortion. Now, I'm really pro-choice, but I think the phrase like it's a woman's right to choose is what in logic would be called begging the question. Right. So then the question becomes, where does the right of the fetus to live begin to outweigh or compete with the right of the woman who's yeah. carrying that fetus? You're right. right? And, it seems like, and it seems like viability is an easy answer, but it maybe shouldn't be the right answer. I'm not sure. I mean, viability at this point is basically like somewhere between, let's say, 22 and 26 weeks to give a really broad spectrum, you know, a fetus that is barely viable and is going to probably really struggle to survive, to me is different from a fetus that is about to be born. But I don't much, it's not like a real answer. It's just about how difficult this gray area is. And I think that's part of why, in some ways, the easy line to draw, especially when you're talking about fetal homicide, is to say we are going to make a difference between babies who have been born and babies who are in utero. Yeah. Although I will say that the people who've written this law have maybe not thought it out any better than we have. They just feel stronger about their opinions. I'm not surprised to hear that. (laughs) Emily Bazelon is a panelist on Slate's Political Gab Fest and a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace 7 has an interface that includes Google Apps, Getty Images, beautiful design. It's simple. It's powerful. It also has 24-7 live chat and email support. For 8 bucks a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year, and every website comes with a free online store. You may not want to even sell anything. It's basically thrusting you in that direction. So if you do a website about jam, and jellies and oddly named jams and jellies. You just might want to sell those jams and jellies. It's as if every time you built in Main Street, they also gave you a little lemonade stand to put on the side. You'd sell lemonade, you would, admit it. So we're asking you if you are at all interested in a beautifully designed website, one that's easy to build, to start a trial with no credit card required. Build that website today. Use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. Human beings, I believe, are basically good. I didn't need to see any Anne Frank play to tell me that. But sometimes we wonder if they are good. And so what we do is we write to another human being. Let's say her name is Prudence. Dear Prudence, not her real name. Her real name is Emily Yaffe. But she is Slate's advice columnist. Sometimes... The advice she gives is to answer the question, was this person being good to me? And now we get to decide if Emily's advice was good to the person writing to Emily. Hello, Emily Offey. Hi, Mike Pesca. That was kind of circular and pretzel-like, but I stand by it. (laughs) I like a circular pretzel. So what conundrum do you have for us today? This was a letter from someone who called herself Little Girl Lost. Now, she's no longer a little girl. She's an adult woman on the eve of her wedding. But she said that more than a decade ago, when she was 15, her beloved mother died of cancer. 
Uh, it was devastating, absolutely devastating to the family, but her dad did a great job and, you know, she and her uh, siblings went on. Uh, the mother knew she was dying, so she, before she died, she wrote a bunch of letters that her daughter should open at various milestones, like graduating from high school, mm-hmm. graduating from college, and and as she wrote, I'm getting married in a few months, and I am now dreading the cap wedding letter from mom. Yeah, She said she understood what her mother was trying to do, um, but there's just something kind of devastating about knowing the letters are coming to an end and hearing from a mother who only knew her as a little girl and is trying to project who this woman was to give advice to who she doesn't know. And she also said that just going back and hearing, you know, this, these new words of the long dead mother Mm -hmm. caused a great deal of emotional upheaval, but she was feeling very guilty about the idea of not opening her late mother's wedding letter. So that's what she was writing about. So before I hear what you said, I will empathize and I will say that I strongly suspect that the mother could not have known how this would all play out. And I would guess, if I had to guess, that the mother, had she known, would say, oh, by by all means, I didn't mean to upset you. And in fact, if you think about what the motivation of the mother was, she was thinking about all these events unfolding like some movie or time-lapse photography. And, you know, as you're lying, dying on your deathbed, maybe you don't factor in what the real world impact would be. I'd let the woman off the hook, open the letters on uh, her own timetable and tell her the mother probably wouldn't be upset. But what did you say? You are so insightful, Mike, because (laughs) that's exactly what I said. (laughs) I agree. Uh, The mother is trying to do the right thing for her child and for herself. I mean, just think of the agony of this little girl will someday get married. I won't be there. But I also agree, no mother would want that to be a terrible psychological burden. And you can understand how years later, you know, you're hearing this this voice sort of describing you and you're like, no, mom, I haven't been like that in a long time. So I totally agreed with you. I said, don't open the letter, put it away. You can open it after you get married. You can open it in, in five years. I said even someday you may have a child who says, Mommy, what was your mommy like? And I said, maybe that's the time you can say, well, I have a letter from her I've never read. Let's read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or read them all at once, and it's fine. And I don't think she's dishonoring the wishes. And in fact, I'll go more global on this. I think on the subject of honoring the wishes or the deathbed confession, but even honoring the wishes of a deceased person, you should, but up to a point. And the main reason to honor wishes is because it helps us, the living, in the process. And also it does send a signal to other people who are around that you will not be forgotten. That's a little bit cynical, but I think that's why we have a lot of memorials for soldiers, let's say, to help their widows and children grieve, but also to kind of inspire future soldiers. Our society remembers you. But still, I do think we put a little primacy. We put a little too much in doing everything to honor the wishes of the dying. And if we don't do it, we beat ourselves up a bit. Particularly at this point in her life, this young woman has to do what's best for her, for her happiness and mental health. And that is 
happens to be surely what her mother would have wanted. All right. Well, let's see if we were right. Let's call her. Hello? Hello. Is this the woman that some call little girl lost? Yes. <laughs> Hi, this is Mike Pesca. I'm here with Emily Yaffe. You might know her as Hi, Prudence. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hi. Hi. So Emily and I kind of agreed. Well, I agreed with Emily. You know what Emily said. But we're here to call you to see what you thought of what Emily said and what you did. So why don't you fill us in if you can? Okay. Well, um, first of all, Emily, thank you for your advice. And um, I took some of it, um, but I, I tweaked it a little according to my situation. And I, I kind of um, developed it a little bit. Your advice to hold on to them and not feel the pressure to open them right away was, was right on that. That felt right to me. But I realized, I started to identify that the, the real anxiety for me was just the idea that this pile of letters and messages was going to end someday. Mm. And I didn't want to come to that day and go, this is the last of it. I also started to realize that I was kind of living under the assumption that as my mom's only daughter, I was the only one of her kids experiencing this anxiety over her letters. Her other two kids are my brothers. So I talked with my brothers. We are close. And, and they said that they felt kind of conflicted over that, too, maybe less than I did. But one of my brothers pointed out, you know, at times we've taken out older letters that we've already read, and we've had a really wonderful experience rereading those. So what if we just opened all the letters and put them all in a big bowl <laughs> or a box, and every time we get together, read some of them. Some will be old, some may be new, because then we won't ever have to face the, the, the last letter clutching that. What a great idea. Yeah. I, I love that, yeah. Yeah, and we also realized um, our mom had a personality that was larger than life, <laughs> And, you know, she, she liked to be in the spotlight. And I think maybe her biggest fear was that the light of her life would go out, you know, that mm -hmm. we would forget about her. So I, I started to realize these letters aren't, they're about me, but they're more about her, I think. And um, it's her gift to us, but it's also, please remember me. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, we decided that, it's a good way to, to honor her. So what we did, we started on um, New Year's Day. We, put, we opened all the rest of the letters, and we just mixed them up with the ones that we already had, and we pulled out four. And two of them were letters we remembered reading before. One of those I had never read because it was to one of my brothers, and he hadn't shared it with us. And then two of them were brand new. So, And it was nice because I realized that every time we get together, we can reread some and read some that are new and it's a shared experience for all of us as siblings which is another benefit and I think she would have liked that. Uh, you know this is so moving that's what a beautiful solution that deals with what was bothering you about it and also you know in a way acknowledge acknowledges mom you are bigger than life and you continue to be so don't worry about that mm -hmm. the other thing is that reading these out of order 
they're not like real letters. It's not like she's going to get extra insight after seeing you between your sweet 16 and your wedding. For her, the exercise was writing it all in the row, and she was trying to do a good thing for herself, but also for you. But I don't think that it might not be in keeping with her literal wishes. Her literal wishes seem a little... A little cinematic to me, right? uh I mean, I really do think you were honoring what you wanted to communicate, even if you tweaked it a little. Right, and I I think that, too, that she... Another thing that um, you mentioned in there, Prudy, was that that it was um, advice from a mother who knew who you were then but doesn't know who you are now. And I think Mm -hmm. that was a sad experience for me, too, thinking she was writing this to me, the me she knew at 14 or 15, and she has no idea. I mean... The whole the reason it upset me so much this time is that I know that letter is going to be about you know flowers and wedding dresses and actually my fiance and I are having a big hike and then we're getting married in <laughs> in the mm-hmm. woods you know just in our boots so you know I thought she doesn't know me and she doesn't know that that's the kind of wedding that I would prefer and so I thought that would make me sad. So have you read that letter? Was that one of those you randomly picked out? No. Okay. No, it wasn't. What if the what if the advice is all stuff like, listen, don't sit Uncle Charlie next to Aunt Claire? What if uh, cousin Belinda is allergic to shellfish? Like that it would have been irrelevant anyway. Don't beat right. yourself up. That's right. So it wouldn't have mattered. So yeah, and in fact one of the letters was to uh, my brother, you know, if if he ever has a, a son, you know, what kinds of things should you do raising a son? And and of course she had no way of knowing if he would ever have a son, but it was it gave us insight into her views on being a mother of a son, which was really cool. Right. She she was a great mother of a son. She was the kind who would tell you to jump in a mud puddle and, you know, do all those things. So she it it was just interesting seeing her perspective. It would be a little weird if more your mother who died more than a decade ago like predicted the demise of Google Glass or something. Like I'd be really <laughs> curious. Yeah, I don't know what she would have predicted. Because, and that's also, it's it's helped me see how much the world has changed just in <laughs> 10 years, yeah. you know, or a little over 10 years. So, You know, I wondered, I mean, obviously no one wants to be in that situation, but would your advice for a very ill parent be don't do the milestone letters, just write something about now, or has there been some value in the open this on your graduation, open this at this point in your life? Um, I guess it would depend on the child, because I was much different from my mom. She was very gregarious and dramatic, and, and I was very practical and quiet and sensitive. And I think for me... The dictating when it should be open was difficult. Mm-hmm. But for some people, that might work. I saw some of the comments on Facebook, and some people were saying, I wish my mom had done this for me. So maybe it just depends on the child. I think for me, maybe having just essays that she wrote about her life that I could read any time and not all this expectation around this sealed envelope and yeah. what's inside it, and when they're all open, will I have finally lost her finally, wow. you know? Yeah. So I, I think it was a little too much to have it in a sealed envelope, whereas if I'd had just a notebook of things she'd written to all of us, you know, already open and available for us to see at any time would have been easier for me. I think best practices to the person who's considering this is to say, 
sketch it out however you want on your schedule, but then allow for an out clause, of course. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah, allow for an out. And I feel that, you know, I was sort of given an out by people I talked with to say, well, just adapt it to your needs. She didn't intend for you to be held hostage to this. So, Are you married? Did you, did, or it's going to take place? March 6th oh. is our, or, I'm sorry, March okay. 7th is our wedding. So, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks to you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. See, Emily, I sometimes get the whiff that things are going to work out just by the reasonable tone of the letter writer, and she actually exceeded my expectations in terms of that. She was so insightful and so grounded, and, you know, your heart breaks a little thinking, this mother would be so proud of this young woman and appreciate how different she is from her. But I love that she came up with a beautiful solution for all of them. I agree. Emily Yaffe writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate. Every so often, she comes on to our show to do a post-prudence impact statement. We always love them. Thank you, Emily. So nice to be here. The Gist is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO starting this Sunday, February 8th. The Jinx's filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during a seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. It was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence, and he remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freemans. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kristen Dunst. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst starts February 8th and airs Sunday at 8, only on HBO. And now the spiel. Names in the news. 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 That's right, Paul. Names in the news. Thank you, Andrea. Names in the news. Names in the news. J.M. Smucker and Co. is adding milkbone dog treats and Meow Mix cat food to its stable of human food brands with an agreement to buy the brand that makes milkbone. The Wall Street Journal went on to report... Quote, there's a lot of opportunity here, said Richard Smucker, the company's chief executive. Well, I mean, I guess that's either how he got the job or shows his commitment to the job that he named himself after the company because no one would. No, obviously, that Smucker was the titular Smucker of the Smuckers brand. I did not know that actual Smuckers were running Smuckers. Why not? That guy's a great Smucker. So I was thinking about Smuckers and the name Smucker and also the word Milkbone. I was also thinking about the guy who is in charge on his business card. I'm in charge of human food brands at the ex-Milkbone company. But Smuckers, obviously, famously, they made the Smuckers name an asset and it got mocked and cleaned. This is from the first ever season of Saturday Night Live riffing on those commercials that said with a name like Smuckers, it had to be good. And they came up with their own iterations with a name like Dog Vomit Monkey Puss. It had had to be good. Here's a couple others. With names like these, this stuff has got to be terrific. 
We're talking fabulous jam here. Save your breath, fella. Here's a new jam we've just put out. It's called Painful Rectal Itch. You'd have to go a long way to find a worse name for a jam. And good? Mwah. With a name like Painful Rectal Itch, you gotta bet that it's great. Mangled Baby Ducks. That's right. Mangled Baby Ducks. Picture a jam so good that you'd dare to call it Mangled Baby Ducks. Great jam. It's beautiful. And yet there are a lot of names like that with things that either seem unappetizing or just make no sense, like Fuddruckers or there's a cell phone company, Orange, or a healthcare company, Oscar. And I guess you got to go through one or two mental leaps to even figure out what those companies are. But maybe there's a reward in it. But, you know, when it comes to pet food, pet food is never like that. It's never obscure. I guess the most obscure you get is something like Yukonuba, but it still has the EU, the yuke, the goodness. But mostly the things like Nature's Variety or Meow Mix or Nine Lives or Puppy Chow or Chuck Wagon. They're really made to be appetizing to us humans without that extra leap of a Fuddruckers or a Smuckers. And I think I know why. It's because the demographic who is buying pet food have this in common. They are humans. And to conceptualize how that pet food would taste... I think the marketers long ago figured out or at least assumed that you can't put too many obstacles in their way, right? You have to make it seem so appealing, but appealing on a very literal, simple level to human beings. And then human beings will say, oh, the chuck wagon. Who wouldn't like a nice chuck wagon running through their house and serving you a nice little meal? So that is why the pet foods like milk bone. Doesn't milk bone sound delicious? I'd like a milk bone. Pet foods always have more delicious sounding names than the actual human foods. All right, more names in the news. Names in the news. Names in the news. Names names in the news. Names in the news. I was reading this book on Joan of Arc. Pretty interesting, this Joan of Arc. Uh, Mike, she's not in the news. She's not, but there's a new book about her, and that's in the news, and it is uh, Joan of Arc by Helen Castor. And there's something interesting I found out about Joan of Arc, and I'd like to share this, this name in the news. I didn't know it. Now, what do we know about Joan of Arc? We know she led a war. She was burned at the stake. Her name was Joan. She was from Arc. But no. Oh, no. She was not from Arc. Wait, what do you mean she was not from Arc? I'm sure a version of the following conversation must have taken place one or two times, right? You're hanging at the Dauphin's Palais. Well, actually, Lord Burgundy, I really don't know the greater Arc metropolitan region. Let's ask Joan. Joan, you're from Arc, right? Should I take the highway or the service road? I mean, where does the traffic get really bad in Arc? Well, I've been meaning to tell you guys something, but about your question, I don't know because I'm not from Arc. What do you mean you're not from Arc? I'm not from there. I don't know anything about Ark. Look, look, I take it. Maybe you're saying, like, I'm Jonah of Ark, but I'm not of Ark. I've transcended my humble origins in Ark. I get that. I don't want to define you as just being the girl from Ark. Your Arkness isn't the only thing about you. But come on, Jonah of Ark, you're from Ark. We need some Ark advice. That's the one thing we know about you. No, no, I'm not from Ark. In fact, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait there, wait there, Joan. Follow me here. Leg of lamb. What animal's leg is leg of lamb from? It's, it's from lamb. All right, all right. And Cinco de Mayo. What month is Cinco de Mayo in? 
Cinco de Mayo, Spanish for 5th of May. So Cinco de Mayo is in May. Correct, Joan. Correct, Joan of Arc. So Joan of Arc, Joan de Arc. You are of Arc. Listen, guys, let me lay some truth on you, okay? And you know you can trust me because only one of us has been hearing voices from Archangel Michael and St. Margaret and St. Catherine, and it ain't you, Dauphin. I'm not from Arc. I have never called myself Joan of Arc. In fact, it was a name thrust upon me because my father was John of Arc. Oh, I get it. Well, at least he's from Arc. Can you call him about our Arc questions? No, no, guys, because get this, he's not from Arc. Two reasons. Reason one, there's no agreed upon punctuation in 15th century France, or as we call it now. So, da Arc, D apostrophe Arc, Dark, same thing. His name was John Dark. Your daddy was Johnny Dark? We called him John Dark, but yeah. And But here's the second thing, and this is a really important thing, and it's going to totally blow your mind. You ready? There is no arc. Again, there is no arc. I'm not from arc. He's not from arc. You will not find arc on a map. There's no arc. Oh my God, Joan, that's, that's incredible. Uh, you know, it really does go to show. You think you know two things about Joan of Arc. Her name is Joan, and she's from Arc. And now you find out she's not even from Arc because there is no Arc. Uh, guys, yeah, what is it, Joan? My name's not Joan. What? Jean. The name is Jean. I call myself Jean La Pousselle. Jean the Maid. I have never wavered on that point. Joan of Arc, other people call it to me for all the wrong reasons. Wow. Wow. Our minds are blown. You have been actively ripping the scales away from my royal eyes. You did speak to God in the field, right? And he did tell you to lead my armies against the English, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That part's true. Okay, well then, Joan, Jean, whatever you are, here's your banner. Here's your armor. Have Adam. And remember, with God on your side, what can go wrong? And so ends the story of Joan of Arc. A girl not named Joan, not of Ark, who, let's face it, didn't speak to God, and who wound up being burnt at the stake, still remembered as the greatest heroine ever. That has been the story of someone actually literally other than Joan of Ark. And that has been Names in the News. Names in the News. Let's not, let's not go through that again. And that's it for today's show. With a name like Bertha Wookalar, she'd get nowhere. So the producer of The Gist changed her name to Andrea Salenzi, and she got uh, maybe arguably somewhere. With a name like Joel Meyer, yeah, you'd buy him as managing producer of Slate Podcasts, but known by his birth name, Boo Boo Grizzlelizzle, you can see why he urinates, defecates, scratches, rubs, and bites trees. With a name like Fleotis McBlunderslop, you'd never trust him to be executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but then he changes his name to Andy Bowers, and he's in Clover. You can go to iTunes. Please do. When you do, give us a review. You can go to iTunes. We're on Slate.com slash just email. Go there to sign up for our daily email. Same deal with Yo. Download Yo. Subscribe to Podcast. Our Facebook site is Facebook.com slash SlateGist. And please help complete Slate's podcast listener survey. Tell us about yourself and your favorite podcasts so that Slate can serve you better. It's helpful. It helps you. It does help us. We'll disclose that. Two minutes of your time. Go to Slate.com slash survey. With a name like Inmate 23749 of the Home for the Criminally Discursive Self-Soothing Audio Experimentation, you would never tune in. 
But we changed that name to The Gist, and then we could say, thanks for listening. When you're writing a period spy drama set in the 80s, details matter. At least they do to the creators of FX's The Americans. They chart the date and time of each scene on a 1983 calendar so they can get every detail right. We really have a great clip of a TV show that we want to put on in that scene, but it was on a Wednesday night, and we just won't use it. We We're don't just do uncompromising, it. <laughs> even though nobody but the three of us in that room looking at the calendar would ever realize it. Join us each week during Season 3 of The Americans for the Slate TV Club Insider Podcast. Search for Slate Americans in your favorite podcast app.